so this morning, uh, by the way, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Anthem. And uh, this week we are starting a, uh, a season called Advent. Uh, long before we would think culturally about, you know, kind of the Christmas season beginning uh, with maybe Black Friday or just, you know, after Thanksgiving, uh, the church has had a tradition of something called Advent, and it comes from the Latin word just for, uh, the Latin word Adventus, which just is the word for a coming or arrival. Uh, and and it's, it's a time when the church takes the, the Sundays, about a month, uh, it's four Sundays because in the Bible, four or 40 usually is a number that's used to indicate waiting. And, and so the church takes the four Sundays be- leading up to Christmas, and, and in those four Sundays and in the days in between, the, the church focuses on uh, the arrival of Christ, the coming of Christ, and, and this is called uh, Advent. And, and so uh, it's both the first advent of Christ, his coming into the world, and also anticipating Christ's second coming into the world when he'll judge the world for, for sin. And so uh, we this year are going to begin celebrating Advent and marking it. And historically, the way the church has done that, through the lighting of candles each week. And it leads up to when Jesus says in John's gospel that I am the light of the world, that he has come into the world to, to vanquish the darkness once and for all. And so I want to invite up today uh, Joseph and Tina Jackson. They're going to be lighting the first candle. And the first candle of Advent reminds us that the light of Christ has brought the hope of salvation into a world overwhelmed by sin and darkness. And while they're lighting it, I'm going to read uh, from the, the words of prophecy from Isaiah. He said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has a light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this just amazing truth. Lord, I, I, over this next season, this, these next four weeks, over this next month, Lord, I ask that you would captivate us with the fact that Christ has come into the darkness, that we weren't just left alone in the darkness, we weren't just left to fend for ourselves, to find our way out of the darkness, to be our own light, or to look within ourselves to find light, but you entered the darkness and have ended it so that now the the light of Christ has vanquish the darkness, that now we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, that now we await the arrival of our King, and now we await uh, with anticipation of knowing that He has conquered darkness. And so, Lord, we thank You for this season. Fill our hearts with anticipation. But, Lord, it's not something that just we can do in our own, but, Lord, it's something You do by Your Spirit. Lord, even today, in the preaching of Your Word, Lord, as we look at Acts, I ask that You would do that, that You would help our hearts to just grasp these really incomprehensible realities and truths of what we have in Christ and what you've done in Christ. Lord, would you do this and make much of Christ both in our midst today and in our hearts over this next month. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, one, uh, you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts 21. Uh, we are going to be continuing, uh, finishing out our series in Acts through, through Advent. Um, but one of the things as I this week, by the way, welcome 
this is probably the first thing you've tried to concentrate on in like eight days, right? You're probably all like, what? You're like coming out of like being stuffed with food and like, well, the world, right? This might be the first time you're not in pajamas uh, for the last eight days. Uh, and so uh, welcome. I hope you had a good uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, and as we're starting Christmas, I've been thinking a lot this week, just boy, does my soul need this season of Advent. Boy, does my soul need Christmas in, in this season. And, and I don't know if you feel that as well, but just coming off of 2020, one, some of us are like, can we just sprint to the end of this you know, this year and get on with the next? Uh, but also just, it just feels like, man, just this time of peace of just marinating in the fact that God has come into the world to make an end of sin and death and, and evil. And, and it was in the midst of this this week that I was like, you know, getting all holly jolly and we're doing like the, the, the cocoa with the kids and, and doing the Christmas tree. And then I was like, oh, kids, have you ever heard about the Rockefeller tree in, in, in uh, Rockefeller Plaza in New York? And they're like, what? And I'm like, it's huge because this is the first year we actually went and cut down uh, Christmas tree. I've never done that in my entire life. So I went and did that for the first time. That was a ton of fun. I was like more giddy than the kids. And, and then we, we brought the tree home and I was like, wait, there's this tree that's like, like five stories high, right? And so there, we go online and then I'm getting all excited and then I go on and then I see this. And I don't know if you've heard about this, but so they, they showed the pictures, the Rockefeller tree, you know, they find like the tree of all trees for this year, you know, and they, they find it somewhere in like Montana. And then they take pictures of it and then they, they cut it down and they bundle it up just right. And they like move it on a truck all the way to New York City. And then they take it off. And there was this point when everyone's like, oh, here's the tree of all trees this year. It's, gonna, it's like a symbol of Christmas and peace and joy. And then they unfurl it. And the tree just kind of like fell apart. It's apparently kind of diseased. And this is what it looks like. So congratulations. It's like 2020's last like dagger in the heart, right? Where it's like Christmas and 2020's like, ha, 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 ha. And they just like, you know. Anyway. But so the, uh, this is what happened. And so it was almost as if uh, this would become like a symbol of just everything that 2020 is, Right? That in the midst of the hope that is supposed to be the holidays, in the midst of the, 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 the hope that's supposed to come into this reality of what seems like almost hopelessness in the year that we've had, this just continues that, that, that idea that perhaps in the midst of the, the hopelessness that there actually isn't really any hope. In, in fact, the New York Times, I, I saw this by the New York Times in an editorial where they, uh, they just said, uh, just get rid of the Rockefeller Christmas tree now. Like, just stop this tradition. Because the idea was, how could we, in the midst of such a year of chaos and conflict and just hopelessness, how could we possibly try to just for a little bit of time just pretend that there's hope? That for a little bit of time, there's some joy. And, and so this has come to be a picture of our times and saying, in the midst of it, you can't, just, uh, you can't just find hope in the midst of the hopelessness. Yet, at the same time, that's precisely what the first week of Advent traditionally reminds us of. That it is actually in the midst of what seems hopeless. It is in the midst of darkness that light comes. It is in the midst of the chaos that a Christ comes. That we have a hope, a sure hope. And not just a sentimental kind of, you know, Hallmark card, just this, you know, sappy, syrupy, sweet thing. But it's, it's, it's not just some vague idea. It's a concrete reality. It is a savior who has entered the world. Hope has entered the world. And, and so, and it comes from the angels. If you're reminded of Luke 2 and the angels, when Jesus is born, they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
Right, so there's this, this idea that hope is entering in the world, that there's, there's a peace that's entering in the world, there's this glory that's entering in the world. And as Christians, every Advent, we remind ourselves, see, here's the thing, over the next month, your heart is going to be prepared for Christmas one way or another. And you're either going to spend the next month kind of constantly probably hearing these stories that's like, hey, listen, there's chaos, there's, there's hopelessness out there, and so how dare you for a time actually remind yourself that there is hope. But here's the thing. We as Christians believe there is a hope that transcends all the hopelessness in this world. And it's not just some idea. Again, it is a Christ who has entered into what is hopeless and has brought hope. And so this morning, that's what we're going to look at. Because Paul, it seems strange that we'd see this from Acts 21, but Paul, in the midst of what is really a, a, a time filled with conflict and a time very much like ours, where there's just this sense of a hopelessness that anything would change, that he comes into it with a message of hope. And it points to the hope that we have in Christ. And so this morning, we're going to look at how to bring hope into uh, the hopeless, how to bring hope into the hopelessness. And first, we're going to see why hope is important, two, what hope looks like in the midst of hopelessness, and then three, how to discover hope. Uh, so first, why hope is important. Again, we're in Acts 21, uh, at the end of Acts 21 in verse 37, and we're, we're coming into the midst of a scene that's this chaotic scene where Paul has gone into Jerusalem and Paul has uh, gone into the temple. He's been sharing the gospel there. He's been teaching about Jesus and he's saying Jesus has entered the world and giving them this truth. And then they begin to uh, war against him, to fight against him. And this mob rises up and you kind of get all these different kind of groups of people now fighting. And in the midst of it, it seems like there's Paul who's just kind of like stirring the pot of all of it from what he's saying. And so we're entering right in the midst of that. So they've kind of got Paul in this mob, and in the midst of it, the, the police, essentially the first century police, take him, and they're pulling him aside into another room. And this is what happens, starting in verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, again, that's kind of like a first century Roman cop, may I say something to you? This is Paul. Paul says, may I say something to you? And the Roman tribune said to Paul, he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? And you're like, wait, wait, <laughs> hold up. Where, where is he going with this? So as soon as Paul says, hey, wait, uh, can, I, can I say something to you? And the guy goes, wait, are you speaking in Greek? And Paul's like, uh, yeah, why? And he goes, because uh, I think then you're an assassin who came in and is trying to take over the city. And Paul's like, whoa, 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 where did this come from? And you might be reading this going, where is this coming from? Well, there's some context of what's going on here. We know this from a first century historian well-known named Josephus. He has a re he's recorded what happened around this time, about a year or two earlier. There was someone in Egypt, uh, a man, who had uh, kind of brought together this entire uh, army. Some say it was as much as 40,000 people strong. And he's this insurrectionist. And so he comes into Jerusalem with this whole mob, says here 4,000 people, and they come up against the city of Jerusalem and they got all the way, Josephus says, to the Mount of Olives. So like this hill overlooking the city, they were gonna tear down the walls to Jerusalem and destroy the city. And, and in the midst of that, then the, and you can imagine this tribune who is stationed in Jerusalem probably had helped fight that. And so in the midst of it, they had, uh, they pushed them back. They got all the way to the Mount of Olives and then they pushed them back. And then as they pushed them back, when they fled, the leader of that army, the insurrectionist, he kind of disappeared into the group. So he just kind of was like this phantom that disappeared and they didn't know where he went. And so the whole time they've been wondering, where is this guy? What has he done? All we know about him is that he speaks Greek and that whenever he's trying to destroy Jerusalem. 
So when you have Paul here, who now all the tribune knows is Paul's kind of causing this chaos here. And by the way, Paul's speaking in Aramaic in some of the places. Then here he's speaking in Greek, so he can speak to them. The tribunes don't understand like the Aramaic and Hebrew languages that are being spoken. They just see chaos. So they don't know what's really being said. They just see chaos. And it's just like this guy who has caused chaos in Jerusalem a year before. And then also in the midst of it, then he speaks Greek. And he's like, wait, if you can speak Greek, the guy from Egypt could speak Greek. And so one plus one, you're the guy, right? So immediately he jumps to that. And Paul's like, whoa, hold your horses. And perhaps there's another interpretation of events here, right? Uh, but what's happening here is there's just this absolute chaos that's happening. And they don't know what Paul's intentions are. You know, is he just stirring up more chaos? Is he just stirring up more conflict? See, their context is in many ways not so different than ours today. That in the midst of political upheaval, instability, people groups fighting people groups, in the midst of the battle, everyone begins to look like an enemy. Right? In the midst of this chaos, it just seems like it will only ever be chaos. It will only ever be just groups fighting against, people, uh, against other groups. And this is what was going on in Jerusalem because it's kind of like become this melting pot for all these different groups coming together and all these nations coming together. See, it was already, in other words, a powder keg. Paul was just a match of what could be many matches. It was already a powder keg. But all hope of peace, of unity of stability seem lost. Very much like in our own day. And so it seemed like in many ways there was never, there wasn't the possibility of peace. There wasn't the possibility of a better day. In other words, it was hopeless. It was hopeless. And that hopelessness about the future is significant. Um, I was reading recently, there's a, a well-known uh, cognitive behavioral, he, he, he invented cognitive behavioral uh, therapy, and uh, his name is Aaron Beck, um, well-known, I guess, psychologist, and he was, uh, it's interesting to me, some of his work and where he was going, and I was reading it, and what I found interesting was that he had discovered this thing called the negativity triad. And, and the negativity triad is something that's used across pretty much all the cognitive sciences now. Um, and it's one of three, there are three things that he says always are correlated with essentially mental health issues, uh, depression, and a special relational conflict, anger, bitterness. Uh, and and the three, one of the three things that's always there is a, a lack of hope in the future. Uh, one of, one of, the reason is because if you believe that our best days are behind us, if you believe that, that, in fact, what's coming is not going to be better, but it's going to be worse, that the future is bleak, then what happens that any attempt to move forward, any attempt to invest in the relationships and the world around you for good, actually you become cynical towards that and you begin to shut down and you just become, essentially everything becomes meaningless and depression sets in. And the future is bleak. Again, it's a good insight because if you're constantly saying, what good is this anyways? Why should I push through the difficult things? Why should I invest in people? Why should I invest in what's coming next? How could there be something better? Then everything is meaningless. And then it becomes hard to see the better day that could be ahead, the better destination 
that perhaps there is something ahead. In other words, when you're in the midst of drowning, when you're in the midst of being overwhelmed, you don't begin to daydream about like better days, right? All you do is flail. And this is why, this is why I bring it up because you're like, man, that's kind of Merry Christmas, Pastor, right? Uh, the reason why I bring this up is because this is why hope is so important because without it, life becomes trivial. Without hope, life becomes trivial. In other words, what happens is advocating for something better seems pointless. Believing in a better day, believing that there's some, you actually have hope in something better that's coming be, seems to be just completely naive. Now, I don't think, I don't believe this because of Beck. I, I think also Beck is tapping into something that's actually deeply biblical. And I think all the other cognitive sciences that are tapping into this, the fact that when you feel that there's no, there's not a better hope, they're tapping into something that's deeply biblical and that's hardwired us into as human beings who are not just here for a moment and then gone, but that we're eternal beings. It's what Hebrews 11 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. See, Christianity says that there is a hope of something better. See, in the midst of a time right now, it's so easy to believe that everything, in fact, is hopeless, that, in fact, there isn't anything better ahead, that, in fact, the future is bleak, that, in fact, our best days are behind us. And you know what? Listen, I don't know those realities, but here's what I do know. Here's a concrete reality of what I do know, that there is a God who entered the world and he gave his life so that in spite of the brokenness and the darkness and the sin in our world, he could save us and bring us into newness of life. And he came once to accomplish that and he's coming again with his second advent in order to bring us home. In other words, our best days are only always ahead of us. And that is a hope that pulls us through right now, that brings meaning into what is happening right now. In the midst of a world that right now is going, because how could you believe that there's hopeless, that there's any kind of hope? I remember I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And when I, around the holidays, even at a young age, I was kind of like cynical when they're like, you, know, you watch the Hallmark movies, you're like, it's better, it's good, it's all that. And I'm like, yeah, when the sugar rush is over, it's like kind of all the good feelings are gone. And you just go back to reality. Is it really hopeless? Like there's no need for just this vague sentimentality. Is there a concrete reality that gives us a better hope? And what the gospel says is there is. That we can have faith in something objective that is true and assured in Christ. And what our world right now, what we right now in this season need is to be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ. And because of that, Paul, hanging on to that, seeing why hope is important, he begins to speak to them. And, and I think this is part of what God is calling us to, is to begin to speak to the world and to embody a hope in the midst of a hopelessness. And I think this Advent season is unique for the church in our times because this is a season for us to marinate in, to dwell in, to meditate on what is the good news of the concrete hope that we have in Christ and to rediscover it afresh. And for it to permeate our homes, our marriages, our friendships, our, our relationships with the world around us. And so that when we go out there, what happens is we just inhabit and embody this hope that is just completely otherworldly. And so Paul is going to, in a moment, he's going to speak and kind of give us three areas for, for hope uh, in the midst of hopelessness. But one of the, the way I see this is, and this goes into, you know, next we're looking at what does hope look like in the midst of hopelessness. 
there was there's also a famous uh, uh, someone named Edwin Friedman who's kind of wrote leadership in all kinds of areas. He was actually a, a rabbi, and uh, he he did something interesting with what's called family systems theory, and which is when you take like a family and it's been chaotic, um, the family's broken down, there's been uh, trauma or just it's a mess. What he usually traditionally what you would do is you would try to like work with the entire family system, but what he found to work best was to bring out of the family the healthiest individual. And oftentimes, he would actually bring one of the children, let's say like a junior high age or high school age child. And he would bring them out. And what he would do is he would look for a child who had the most, the sense of hope, a sense of confidence that there was some better day that they actually could make a difference in the family. And so he would pull them out and then he would work with them. and And then what he would do is reinsert them into the chaos. And by reinserting them into the chaos, he found that that was the best way to actually bring stability and to actually bring hope and change into that family. And and the reason why I bring that up is because I think in many ways that's what God does here with Paul sending him into Jerusalem. And I think that's what God is calling us right now in our cultural moment to be as the church, to for a time to be pulled out and to be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ, this, this reality that we have, remember it afresh, and then to be sent back out into the chaos, being sent back out into the world, and then be a beacon of light in the midst of it. Make sense? So how does Paul, what are the three realities he brings in the midst of the hopelessness. The first, and really these are who he is, the world he's in, and then how to act because of that. Um, the, the, who he is, the world he's in, how to act. The first, who he is. Hope is not found in our righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. Our hope is not found in our righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. Now, uh, let's read, and then I'll unpack that. I am starting in verse 3 of chapter 22. I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being jealous for God, as all of you are to this day. So what Paul is doing is he's kind of going down his rap sheet. All these people are persecuting him, and he's like, hey, actually, I've been there. I was persecuted this way to the death, this way being the Christians, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priests and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds, to Jerusalem to be punished, to imprison them. And then even he brought some of them to be martyred, to be killed for their faith. And so what Paul is saying here, the reason why I say that our righteousness, our hope is not found in our righteousness, but Christ, is that Paul, what he does here when he begins speaking to them is he doesn't talk about himself in terms of I'm the hope. But what he does, he says, I'm just like you. I'm someone who's broken, who I don't have hope within me. There isn't some kind of light within me that if I just go deeper inside myself, then it's going to make, oh, there it is. There's the hope of the world, right? But often what we do, if we're honest, is in the midst of all the hopelessness that we see, all the chaos that we see, is we begin to believe that it actually is incumbent upon us to actually be the the perfect example of, of how to be. And so what we often do is, here's hope world. Be like me, right? And, and it, you know, if you'd be like me, then everyone would get their act together and everything would be fixed, right? And so what we tend to do is we in some way pull a mirror out and we look to ourselves. But what Paul does is he says, no, 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 no. I'm just as hopeless as you. But do you know where I find my hope? Because this is where Paul's going. Do you know where I find my hope? My hope is not internal to me. It's external to me. It comes from outside of, it comes from out, out of this world. It comes, from, it comes from someone who's alien to me. It comes from Christ. And that's exactly what Advent, this entire season, reminds us of. It reminds us that there's a Christ 
came into the chaos. If there's someone who, who came into the midst of the brokenness, who, who was not broken himself, who was perfectly righteous, he came into the unrighteous so that we might be made righteous and be made new. And here's the thing, in the midst of it, because this is how I think you can know that we lose track of these things biblically, because I know when I'm saying this, it's not our righteousness, but Christ. You're like, thank you, pastor. That's like 101 for Christianity, right? Thanks for repeating that. But I think we, we often, there's a reason why, like I've been struck by myself. Uh, I've had mentors point this out over the last, what has it been, nine months, 10 months? I think my whole life, it's been chaos. Uh, chaos. I don't think we, any of us remember before COVID what life was like, right? Uh, they remind me that, Matt, when you look at the world and it's like overwhelming, do you realize that don't you believe what the Bible actually says about the world around you? I was like, wait, that's true. Because the thing is, if we go in and we actually are kind of in Scripture and we're hearing what God says about the world, he's saying, listen, without me, there, is, there isn't hope. Without me, there's only conflict. Without me, there's only death. And, and I know that sounds so stark and that sounds so dark, but the, the Word of God has been telling us this forever. And then in the midst of when there's chaos and it just seems like no one can get along and no one can see eye to eye and, and our, you know, there's disease and there's all these things and then there's all debate about all those things. In the midst of it, you're going, what is going on? And the thing is, when we come to Scripture, it's like this is exactly what God has been telling us since the dawn of time. That apart from him, there's only darkness. So we shouldn't be surprised. And that's why he says, listen, it's not going to be by you holding yourself up on a pedestal. It's not going to be by you trying to every day look in the mirror and tell yourself that you're the one who has it all together and no one else does. But it's by simply coming back to the fact that it's like, only but for the grace of God. to finding your identity in Christ and His righteousness. And so here's the thing. Over the next month, I know that we often don't think about this during Advent or the time leading up to Christmas, but take time to think about the fact that God coming into the world, the fact that now you have a relationship with God that you can enter into His presence, that you can know Him, and it's because He's made you righteous in Christ. Now, if Jesus didn't enter the world... You could not be righteous. In fact, you would be lying to yourself that you could be seen righteous. You would have nowhere to go with your guilt. And there would be no hope. And so during this season, take time to marinate in that truth that God has come into the world and he's made a way for you to be made righteous, to know him. And the second, hope is not found in the absence of problems, but the fullness of Christ or his presence. Look at verse 6 through 8, and Paul's going to begin, he's kind of recounting, this passage actually is pretty much just recounting what happens back uh, at Paul's conversion in Acts, but he says, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, when, we're, when we read through this, it's easy to miss a really striking statement that's right there in the middle of verse 7. Because remember, this is Jesus speaking to Paul. And does Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the Christians? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting those, those really nice people over there? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He doesn't say that. Now, that's true. If you were to look, you had binoculars and you were watching Paul in the first century, what would you see? You would see him persecuting Christians. 
Do you see him taking people in bonds? How he just described it. But what Jesus says is, do you see that I identify with my people? That it's not just that, I, I, okay, they're Christians, so they're my followers. But in fact, I identify when you persecute them, you persecute me. Why? Because I am with them. I am with them. I am one with them. See, here's the thing. What Advent reminds us is that the idea of the holidays, the idea of this whole season is not just kind of some ceasefire. I, I think sometimes we think that uh, peace and, and, and love, all these things, they come from just kind of, hey, time out, and everyone puts their guns down, and we all go over and we have like, you know, kind of a, a, a nice merrymaking time, and then we go back, we're like, okay, time to pick up the guns and go back to war. Like, in other words, that, that peace is the absence of conflict. And that, that can be true. But in fact, what the Bible presents is it says, no, 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 you should have a peace that is not just the absence of conflict, but is actually the fullness of presence, of God's presence in your life. See, the Bible doesn't, and Christianity doesn't just give you kind of like, hey, just take a break and get away from all these things. Because the thing is, if that was the peace that the Bible presented to you and offered to you, then the peace that you could have would only be as secure as that, that, that moment in time. In other words, in the midst of the troubles of life, anytime there's trouble, then the problem is you'd say, well, I guess I can't have peace. But in fact, what the Bible says is even in the midst of trouble, even in the midst of chaos and problems, you can actually know peace. This is something even from the Old Testament. This is why one of the best-known Psalms, Psalm 23, in the face of death, in the face of, of enemies, it says, you prepare, God, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I didn't say, God, you prepare a table getting rid of my enemies. It's just you there. We're just having dinner together. And it's really, really nice. Uh, and no, he says, you actually prepare a dinner or a table in the midst of my enemies, in the midst of my enemies being around. You are present in the midst of trouble. You are there. And this is why one of the profound realities of Advent is when we go to, we see that there's a promise of Emmanuel. The center of, 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 of Christmas is this reality of Emmanuel. God is with us. And again, that's not just some slogan. It's not like God had a good PR agent. He was like, you know what you need? You really need God is with us. And he was like, oh, that sounds good. Yeah, roll with it, right? Like we can put that on bumper stickers and whatnot. No, what, it's, it's a reality. Help, let this sink into, into your soul that these are not just vague ideas, but in fact, what he's saying is I am with you. That the God who was not able to be with you because of your sin, the God who had, who had given you over into exile in the Old Testament, the God who had to turn his back on you, the God because of your sin, now he is with you because he's making a way through his son. I am with you. Again, the hope that Advent offers, the hope of the word of God that we are given in the gospel is not just some sentiment we are given a Savior, a Savior who secures it, and He draws near to us. And that's key because it provides hope, a hope of meaning in the midst of the hopelessness. So, so far, Paul has shared where he finds his hope. First, you know, who he is, he's righteous in Christ. Second, that the world he is in, that Christ is with him in the midst of the trouble of the world. But then now he's going to share how he'll, he's learned to act uh, on those realities. So the last is hope is not found in our credibility, but God's call. Look at verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, 
I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. This is God speaking to Paul. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who, who killed him. And he, God, said to, him, to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. See, what Paul wrongly had assumed was that his credibility with the, with the Jewish people would be enough. That because he had been one of them, his testimony, his, he had enough credibility that he'd be enough to bring them hope in the midst of the hopelessness. But then what, Paul, what God does is he sends him, verse 21, he actually sends him away into Arabia for a few years. This is when Paul goes away, kind of like the lost years of Paul, uh, where he goes away and starts his missionary journey where, where he's kind of taken away. And you can imagine as Paul's out there, he's, the, the struggle that he probably had in wondering, okay, if I'm sent out there, but my people are there and they're, they're hopeless. Remember, Paul was a leader amongst this, this community. These were his friends. These were his, his spiritual brothers and sisters, and he, he had a concern for them. And he's feeling like, if they, I now have this hope, and they're hopeless. And even more, you can imagine how he struggled with the fact that God's saying, no, you're not the one who will be able to do it. And Paul probably struggled wondering what purpose. Why, God? What's the meaning behind all that? Why is this happening this way? And we know eventually that Paul, through his other writings, that he discovered this, this, this truth, which is that his life doesn't have, he doesn't find meaning in who he is in his life through his credibility, but he finds it through trusting in God's call upon him. See, see what Paul found again and again as God, and this has been happening in Acts, as God is kind of like turning Paul all these different unexpected ways and down these paths, but life is not going how Paul thought. And there's filled with a lot of trouble, a lot of chaos. And what Paul is it would be so easy for him to buy into, especially in the first century, because Paul is from Tarsus, where some of the most famous Stoic teachers of the ancient world are from. There was this idea that the world and our lives, the trouble in our lives is just happening through some impersonal fates. We're just causing the things in our life to happen. Do you ever go through life feeling that way? Like things are just happening and the trouble around you is just like some chaos that's happening, but there's, why is it happening? But what Paul learned was not impersonal chaos or impersonal fates, but it's a personal father. That he has a God who is sovereign over all of the trouble, all of the difficulty in his life. While that doesn't explain all the difficulties that are going on, at the same time, what Paul knew then is that meant that if God is leading him through it, it means that it's not just by accident. It's not just happenstance. It's not just a mistake. But in fact, that means that there's meaning in what's happening there. That God is allowing, if he would lean into what God is doing and he would say, God, what is the meaning for this, this season? What is the reason for why you have me in the midst of this time? And then all of a sudden he would see, because he knows there's a God behind, there's meaning. Let me, and I think this is really important right now in the midst of the chaos, because I think right now it's so easy just to think there's just chaos happening. And to forget and just kind of be kind of lost at sea while all kind of where the cross currents are just hitting one another. You're just bobbing up and down trying to stay afloat. And it's like, what is the meaning of this? But what God is saying is, what, what is the meaning? What am I teaching you in the midst of this season? What in the midst of my call? You are in this time. We've been talking about this again and again at Anthem. You are not in this time, in this place for it by accident. You are here for a reason. I've been realizing this lately, let me put some flesh on this, where 
in the midst of the last few months, I've just found myself, honestly, with everything, the chaos has been happening. I, I get overwhelmed because I can't, or I should say defeated, frustrated. Uh, I, I grumble because of this, I'm trying to put, make it tangible, because of the fact that I just can't like, explain everything going on in the world around us. I, I can't take all of this chaos and all these things that are happening and going, okay, here's what's happening, distill it, turn around, explain it, and make that satisfactory, and then bring people hope and, and kind of turn, uh, uh, help people through that. And it, it's really, really difficult for me that I can't just like fix it all. I don't know if some of you are in that same place, but there's different emotions that some of you might just be angry in the midst of the season, whatever it is, but they're just these overwhelming emotions that are coming out. And in the midst of it, I remember one day just sensing God saying, Matt, 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 yes, you are not able. You're not able, but I am. And what I want you in this season to learn is to trust me, to trust my spirit, to trust my word, to trust my power, because so often you don't. You trust in your own. You see, what I realized was the call, like right now, the meaning for why I'm this season and my, where I, what God's doing in my life as I'm in it is he's refining me so that I would see his power, that's his spirit, that's not by me. There's meaning in the midst of the call. And what Paul says is hope doesn't come just by you being more credible and you being able to perform, but hope in the midst of the season comes by you trusting in God's call and learning what God is teaching you. Are you listening to what God is teaching you in the midst of this time? It gives it so much more meaning, so much more meaning to know that a, a sovereign God who is good, who disciplines his son, who, who transforms us, who makes us, transforms us from one degree of glory to another, tra- makes us, crafts us more and more in the image of Christ. He holds our hand. He's present with us. And in the midst of it, he's leading us through it. There's hope. And lastly, because in the midst of this, I think that as we take hold of that reality in Advent, what happens is we begin to have a hope that is so, it's needed in our own lives and it's needed in the world around us. And I think, again, this is the time for the church to really embody the hope that is uniquely ours in Christ. And so lastly, how to discover hope. After sharing where he finds hope with, with the crowd, they, unfortunately, they just, they kind of go, uh, they go crazier, like, because he says, and this is also for the Gentiles. You're like, we don't like the Gentiles. And so they explode and they kind of like, you know, it gets worse from there. And so uh, here's the, here's the thing. Obviously, as we're going through, what I love about Acts is Acts doesn't kind of always put this bow on every scene. You know, it's kind of like every Hallmark movie where it's like, oh, something bad happened. And at the end, it's like, oh, but it's all better now. It's like an Acts, a lot of times, it's like, yeah, it doesn't get all better. But through it, what we see is God is still at work and pro- usually even in more profound and powerful ways. And so what happens here is it doesn't, nothing, there's still chaos and there's still all the difficulties. But what happens is God is still at work. And I think probably most likely, Humanly speaking, if I had to say, coming out of this season of Christmas and the holiday seasons beginning 2021, I have an idea the tracks probably aren't that much smoother in the season ahead. There's probably going to be a lot more, a lot of the chaos. And in the midst of it, the, idea, the thing is, are we going to come out of this season being prepared, just grounded in hope? You know, I was thinking about this, like, hope and this week in it, how do we, like, discover? How do we take hold of that? And I was reminded, uh, again, I, I don't know if I said this in this sermon, but I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Uh, and we were really obsessed with um, uh, Bill Clinton in, in my house growing up. You guys know, uh, you guys know who Bill Clinton is, right? Okay. Uh, so when um, uh, we just, we love Bill, we were, we were a blue collar factory family. So we just, we, he just gave us the warm fuzzies. And I remember once watching t- TV and, and he said, he had this slogan, some of you are old enough to remember it, where he would say, I am from a place 
called Hope, right? And I was like, oh, what is this place? Like, I mean, it sounds weird, but I was like a nine-year-old and it like filled me with wonder, like, what is this place called Hope? Like, and it, I remember my mind going down this road of like, because of all the things that, you know, my parents like, oh, the Clinton administration, it was like, there's hope out there. And I remember thinking, is there really a place where there's like just really hope? And, you know, my parents are probably sitting back going like, should we tell them it's a little city in Arkansas or should we just, <laughs> it's Hope, Arkansas. That's what he was saying. And so they're like, do we burst that bubble or not? And, uh, but I just was filled with wonder and they probably should have just take me to Disneyland or something instead. But I was amazed with the idea, is there really a place called Hope? Is there really like some hope out there or is this just all some kind of just idea that we tell ourselves just to get through some rough days and rough patches of life? And here's the thing, in this season, I think God is calling us to make our homes a place called hope. God is calling us to be a city on a hill, to have homes where the light penetrates the darkness. And this happens by focusing our homes on Christ. The whole point of this season of Advent is prepare ourselves to reorient our hearts to the reality of who Christ is. We read in Isaiah at the, during the candle lighting, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. This is throughout Scripture. The story is that there is darkness, yes, but those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And he goes on to give this prophecy of Jesus. He says, yes, there is darkness. Yes, if you look around the world, you don't have to just pretend that everything is okay. But also, if you look, there is on the horizon a light that is rising, and it is going to extinguish the darkness. And this is why Jesus then picks up those words in John 8, and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Throughout Scripture, what Jesus is saying is, do you see that, yes, there is darkness around you, but do you see that I am coming into the world? That that is a concrete hope you can build your life on. And here's the thing. This Advent season, don't go through this season without orienting your home around this reality. And I know home might mean you with your roommates. It might mean uh, you with your kids. It might mean you with grown kids. It might mean you and your spouse. It might mean, mean again, with roommates or, or whoever it is around you. But in your home, what we've done is we've designed this Advent guide. It's a digital uh, guide. They're going to talk more about it where you can get it at the end of the service but you can just have it on your phone. And it's going to walk you through things like every day, a candle lighting, where you can light a candle while you read passages that point to Christmas and or the reality of Jesus coming into the world, Old Testament, New Testament passages. And then you're able, if your kids are old enough, discuss it around the table. What does this mean that Jesus come into the world? And then from there, then you're able to light the candle and it's even got links to singing Christmas songs uh, and then also uh, prayer prompts and whatnot. I would highly encourage you to set aside a time. It could be morning. My family, we do it right after dinner. The Advent uh, candles and stuff are on the table. And after dinner, we, it's like, okay, kids, let's do this now. And so we light the candle. My kids love lighting a candle because they love playing with fire a bit too much. And so we light the candle and then we sing. And then by the end, they've memorized different scripture passages because they're saying them every single day and reading them to one another. And then we celebrate this time together. It's also a great way when people come into your home who, who maybe aren't, aren't used to being in a Christian home, just to, in, a, in an e, a easy way when we have family over to be able to say, hey, we do this. Would you mind joining us? And they, it's just a great conversation starter about the gospel. 
and about who Christ is. So we've given you that as a simple devotional that you can download and you can use. And, uh, but I, here's what I would say. Again, you're, by the time Christmas comes, you are going to be expecting something. Your heart's going to be formed. Your heart's going to be ready for something on Christmas morning. Will it be ready for the good news of Jesus Christ entering in the world? Will you use this season to be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ? Because here's the thing, we don't have to believe the lie that all is hopeless. All is not hopeless. Hope is coming, and he is coming again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this, the truth that in the midst of a world that feels chaotic, that's got a lot of conflict and things happening in it, Lord, in the midst of it, that we can grab hold of a, a hope that is a concrete hope, not just a hope of our imagination, not just a hope that we just, it's a figment of our, of our, of our imagination, our minds that we make up, just nice thoughts, sentiments, but Lord, hope that's found in Christ and what he has done and what he continues to do and will do. And so Lord, I pray that you would, this season, you would root our hearts, our souls in the hope that we have in Christ. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.